Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Warning. Content in this episode is graphic and includes discussion around suicide and anxiety and may not be suitable for all listeners. She is unstable, emotionally rapid, changing from smiles to tears, over-talkative, with unnecessary detail and generally overactive. She sees fancied resemblances to her relatives and those about her. She has been restless, sleepless, noisy since admission, singing and chattering constantly. There is a religious vein in most of her talk. Attached to the wall of an art gallery are hospital notes describing the state of Susie Harris's great-grandmother, a resident at Brentwood Mental Hospital in Essex, England. Alice Minnie Markham was put in an asylum. She went into the unit in like 1928 and she died in 1971. Hi, I'm Sonia Yee, and you're listening to Only Human, a podcast about the moments where life takes a turn when you least expect it. This story, An Invisible Battle, is about resilience and a woman who lives deep within her internal world. Warning, this story contains graphic descriptions that may not be suitable for all listeners. And she spent 50 years in an asylum. Now, how old was she when she was admitted? Mid-20s. I think she had her two children. And not long after that, Alice's moods and behaviour changed, possibly due to some form of postnatal depression, which even today isn't widely understood. Doctor has granted me four days leave. My cousin would like to meet Kenneth. Please kindly reply, thanking you, yours faithfully, Alice Minimark. Alice's story is one of desperate isolation. When she was admitted to Brentwood Hospital, her family was simply told she'd passed away. My auntie was researching the family tree and was like, what happened to this great-grandmother that died in the 20s? She didn't. She died in 1971 and no one knew. So she'd write these letters and then they get returned to sender. Alice had even written to one of her daughters, unaware that her daughter had died many years beforehand. And Alice's story is not only poignant because it sheds light on a family member who was cast into the shadows due to mental illness, but also because there's a parallel between Alice's story and Susie's. Locked in the dark, no life, no breath, sucking my soul, it's white and dead, white sheets, white pillow. Is this where I belong? Sometimes I hear the yells, shouts and anger, tiny window, such a tiny window. I remember being put into ICU and my room was like a box with a mattress on the floor. And a window that was about 20 centimetres squared. And even then it looked out into a courtyard of concrete. You know, it's the kind of stuff that in prison we'd we'd lock someone in solitary confinement and call it a punishment and then we do the same in a hospital where we think people are going to get well. Throughout her childhood, Susie struggled with mental illness and as she got older, this led to a series of suicide attempts so my first admission was 2010 at Te Matadangi. That was about nine years ago. So I would have been 22. 
I went in believing that I was broken, came out thinking I was even more broken. Now the thing about Susie is that her mental illness came out of a search for meaning. Even as a child, she was confounded by big picture questions about the meaning of life and her purpose within it. And over the years, she's been given diagnosis after diagnosis, starting with... Generalised anxiety disorder. And then I got a schizophrenia diagnosis at one point, which I didn't even know until I read through my notes. I guess the final diagnosis I got given was um, complex PTSD. PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think the complex just kind of means that you're, you've got a very flawed kind of view of your identity within that. So you've kind of had the trauma, but I guess from the trauma, you've kind of built your identity around it. She was a highly sensitive child, and on top of that, also a perfectionist. The eldest of five children, Susie felt the weight of responsibility and expectation on her shoulders. She describes her family life as beautifully chaotic. Her parents had a thirst for adventure, which meant that Susie and her siblings were regularly uprooted, shifting to different locations and new schools, and later to another country. But this beautiful chaos was sending Susie into a space where she was trapped in her own head. And even at an early age, her fear and pain were starting to manifest physically. I think the self-harm probably started at a younger age than before I started cutting. And so I remember as a child getting stuck in these obsessive compulsive behaviours. I guess if I did something wrong or maybe if I was having a hard day or school was difficult, let's say, I'd be like hitting my legs, pinching my skin. The school that I was at, my classroom was downstairs and the school toilets were upstairs. And I would walk upstairs to the school toilets, lock myself in a cubicle and I'd spin around until I got really, really dizzy in the hopes that when I walked back downstairs to my classroom, I'd fall down the stairs. And I've got these strange diary entries when I was like nine or ten saying, I went to school today, I didn't break a leg or die, but the weather's nice. I was just almost doing these behaviours without even quite knowing while I was doing them. And did anybody start to clock it, like the teachers or your parents? No, I think I knew it was strange enough that I didn't want to talk about it. But I was just stuck in this strange routine of doing these things and thinking that maybe if I was able to inflict pain on myself, it might cancel out any unpredictable pain that might come out. It became a coping mechanism that in Susie's head prevented bad things from happening. But something awakened in her. The first time she accidentally cut herself, she was in the bath when she nicked her leg with a razor. And in that moment, she felt a strange sense of release. I felt present and grounded in a way that I hadn't felt before. It felt like my brain had no skin and I had no boundaries. Like, I didn't know where I stopped and the world began. And my thinking just felt so much bigger than me. I was dyslexic as well, so I hated school. And life felt bigger and everything just felt overwhelmingly huger than I could get my head around. And then suddenly in that moment, there's this really strong, bittersweet feeling of pain. My brain went from all of these things and then nothing. It just gave me this space to to have a break. And that break was something she desperately needed. 
you know, particularly when I was only a teenager, the school I started was really rough and there was a science class I was in where a girl walked up to me and poured um, acid that we were working with down my pants. The shame of, like, not standing up for myself and then having to go tell my teacher and then the teacher saying, you've got to take your pants off and then for the rest of the day I had to wear my PE shorts and my pants had to be soaked in, like, this alkaline solution, I guess. And for Susie, these experiences were traumatic and humiliating. They were out of her control, including one instance, an IT class, where a girl came up behind her and burnt the bottom of my hair. It was only for, like, 30 seconds, but the smell was awful. You know, a teacher didn't see. I just was frozen. I think I just learnt from these experiences to just sit still and just play dead. She felt an overwhelming sense of shame and never even spoke to her parents about these experiences that were beginning to propel her towards dangerous self-harm. And I remember going into the school toilets and trying to cut out the burnt bits because I didn't want anyone to know and I didn't want my parents to know. Self-harm became this friend that meant that it didn't matter how much somebody hurt me, I could hurt me more. And because of that, I'm almost concrete. I'm untouchable. Almost like I was stronger than anyone. Susie began making cuts on her legs and stomach, places on her body that could be easily hidden. I didn't even realise how big it would be. It almost took on a personality of itself. Where once it was a way for Susie to regain some control, this friend was slowly starting to take over and there was nowhere left to hide. It even had a voice. Susie, you have to cut. cut. This was when I was 13. At the age of 16, I moved again. We moved from England to New Zealand. And then I started another school. And I was at that school for eight weeks. And then we moved to another school, getting used to being in a new country. And you just feel so lonely because everyone has memories that you're not part of, pictures on the walls of friends. By the time I got to 16, this had been my habit for three years. By 18, she had hopes that she could break away from the pain. I left home, thought if I went to Victoria University and studied psychology... Maybe they will teach me something about self-harm or they'll teach me something about mental health. Maybe I can actually figure myself out. But the move only triggered further feelings of isolation. Added to a new life where there were parties, drugs and alcohol, the pressures of studies and cramming for exams. Before she knew it, her world was starting to crumble around her. It was the perfect storm. Probably by May, made my first suicide attempt. She'd taken a whole box of painkillers, around 40 or 50, which was nothing, she says, in comparison to what she would do in the future. I took it in a moment of, I don't want to live anymore. And then, like, five minutes later, I changed my mind and tried to make myself sick, and I couldn't. And I thought, oh, crap, like, I'm in trouble now. And then went to my RA, who was, like, really awesome and really compassionate, but I don't think quite knew what to do, and I didn't know what to do, and I didn't want the ambulance coming into the hostel so everyone could see me. She called the ambulance herself and waited on the street. By this time, the pills were kicking in. She felt sick. Neurofin Plus has um, codeine in it, so I was just, like, really out of it. And so by the time they picked me up, it had already been absorbed, and so they took me to hospital, and then I think I was in hospital for, like, two nights. Susie was referred to the crisis team through the Wellington Mental Health Services, But there was no follow-up on either side, and while she wasn't in a position to make any decisions, she was also given an ultimatum. I was told that if I wanted to keep studying, I had to tell my parents and I had to see a counsellor. It felt like more of a punishment. 
How many times after that did you try to kill yourself? 30 times. The last attempt I made was when I was 25. Again, it became part of, you know, another strange kind of way of protection. She did end up telling her parents, but she minimised the situation. By this time, Susie's losing weight. She's not looking after herself. And rather than trying to get better, the overdosing increases and she ends up dropping out of university. So I went from nothing to stereostrips and needing to get stitches, and that was shocking at first, but by the third time, all well, then the stitches were normal, and so that was just like a normal part of life. Except the bittersweet release she once felt after cutting was turning into something that frightened her. You know, so very specific rules around how I needed to do things, and if I didn't do it, well, then the next week you get 100 stitches and you're going to take an overdose. It sounds strange to say I got in trouble and I didn't do it. But the punishments got worse. If you only got, like, 98 stitches, yeah. you, you what, would have to cut yourself more times yeah. in one session? Or I'd just have to remove the stitches. It wasn't until I kind of tried to get support. I kind of had been kind of referred eventually to see, like, a psychologist, but it didn't work out. Susie was placed in a residential programme, but learning to be well within the centre was easy. Coping outside was a different story. She managed to stave off the cutting for about three months after she left the programme, and then the cutting intensified. Cutting on one arm, cutting on both arms, going from stitches to internal stitches that go inside you that have to dissolve. And then it was not just overdosing, but taking double that amount or triple that amount. I was basically in ED kind of every week for three or four months until eventually they were like, well, we need to put her in the hospital. I was just stuck in this space. I did not know how to get out of it. I'd had a couple of runnings within ED or with kind of like mental health staff and support that had just been really patronising, just quite belittling and feeling very unseen, you know, like back to that, that feeling of being a child, very invisible. This repeated self-harm might have numbed the pain, but her anxiety mounted and intensified, and as she arrived at D-Day, she'd have to go through the cycle of cutting all over again. Each cut provided some relief. She'd adhere to the commands inside her head. And then it would stop, and I'd have a break where it was done, and I didn't have to work myself up to do something that I really didn't want to do. I think it was just the relief that my brain was silent, you know, for a few days, and then and then it would start coming back, almost like a whisper. I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm not going anywhere, I'm here. I just dreaded it. It scared me into complying. It felt like this voice was just bigger than my body. It felt like it was a force of nature that just kind of had taken over and I was just stuck. I was fighting a battle that no one could see. And Susie desperately wanted to get better. She was admitted into a psych ward. You know, my first admission was seven months. They just had no idea how to cope with the destructiveness of my behaviour, this part of me that I just had, I had no control over. And what's more, she was left with no sense of self-worth. One of my sisters printed me out a photograph of us as a family and she came to visit me and I'd ripped myself out of the picture. I didn't think I should be part of the family. And so she came back the next week with another picture that was laminated. Maybe you didn't even feel human by that stage. 
I just felt like I was wasting air, you know, for other people. I just was exhausted and I just had no fight left in me to keep pushing me to keep going. With the support of her family, Susie finally got on the mend. Part of that was learning how to manage her thoughts and fears. This is just like a terrified part of myself that is just so scared of being hurt that it will do whatever it takes to stop it. Normally it only comes up now if I do something wrong, if I accidentally offend someone or if I say something that hurts another individual. I feel this big feeling of I'm bad and I'm horrible and I need to not do this to people so I need to be punished and I think, no, no, slow down. Let's just find out first how this person feels. If I break a glass or something doesn't quite go perfectly, instead of going, oh, I'm so bad, I'm an awful person, just thinking, you broke a glass, it doesn't mean that you need to try and end your life. So I had to really teach myself truth. It's almost hard to believe that Susie was once so confounded by her own fears, because today she's a woman who's warm and engaging. She radiates a kind of light that invites you in. Now, one of the driving factors that helped her to heal was the idea of having an exhibition. And Monuments of Hope for me is, I guess, trying to show that the experience, although painful and debilitating, also has the ability to give you great insights and great growth. And, and for me, it's made me who I am today. On the left side of the gallery wall, there's a row of polystyrene and smaller plastic cups that have been peered up. Some have her name written on them in vivid marker, others have just her initials. The spelling varies as we walk across the length of the display. And then we have cups from an incredible nurse that I had when I was in the hospital who noticed that I was saving these cups and started drawing pictures on them of, like, the sea with fish swimming in them, clouds, mountains... He would intentionally spell my name wrong as kind of a joke because other nurses had been spelling my name wrong. Because it's like somebody sees you. Yeah, totally. For the first time. Yeah. It just felt like I was giving back my humanity. Which was crucial to Susie's recovery in a health system that sees its patients not as individuals but as their diagnosis. People without diagnosis can have a hard day and get a bit angry and that's okay because they're a human having a human emotion. But as soon as you've got a diagnosis and you're having a hard day... You're sat down and you're asked if you're taking your meds. Some of my friends have been told horrific stuff, diagnosis as being worse than cancer. And then we wonder why people leave and commit suicide. When I was really unwell, what I really needed to hear was hope, that life was beautiful and rich if I was able to just keep fighting. Another work is made from laddered tights wrapped around a twisted form. For Susie, this is a representation of how self-harm would look if she met it on the street. A lot of this is like bandages and stuffing because I used to have to get stitches and I had operations a couple of times on my arms and then they'd wrap it in like a bit of like cotton wool over your arm before they put the sling on. So I kind of incorporated the things that were part of my, I guess, healing and then putting it into it. And then also someone else came in and said, oh, it looks like a brain, brain under pressure and in pain and this was part of my behaviour and this is what I did but who I am as an individual, I'm more than those things. A series of large staged photographs line the far end of the gallery. Susie poses for the camera. Her bare arms painted in gold and her scars in full view. It's confronting and raw. The raised marks crisscross her way up her arms and there are too many to count. The lines blur and merge and it's hard to see where one cut begins and another one ends. 
So even when this photo was taken, I like continued self-harming and now this arm in the photo no longer exists because right. it's kind of it different changed. now. Yeah. And you've actually got a big mark there. A big scar. You've... So that was when I was 24, nearly 25. A lot of my time in hospital, I don't even remember because I was just so unwell. I've got very little feeling in my arms just because I cut through nerves. But basically, I ended up cutting um, two tendons in my arm. That kind of big scar, that's actually a skin graft off my leg. And then, if you hope you're not squeamish, but it's kind of so where the tendon kind of healed, it's kind of stuck. So it's kind of all been twisted and kind of healed. If you were to think back to the 25-year-old you and then you now... When you look in the mirror, what do you see? I feel like I see myself for who I was when I was a child but didn't know I was there. Someone that is very strong. I don't even know how I'm alive today. There's just so many close calls. It just shocks me. But I think when I see myself in the mirror, I feel proud and I feel strong and I feel just bewildered as well because I can't quite get my head around the fact that I'm 32. And even having this exhibition, even for me to sit in that space and to see the words that I'd written, seven years ago wasn't that long ago. I'm so much more than all these bad things that I thought I was. And I think that was a big part of like my recovery, was just really having to fight against a lot of those beliefs and had to really explore the way I saw myself and the ways that I wasn't kind to myself. That was Susie Harris and I'm Sonia Yee. The sound engineer was Phil Benj and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. If you need help or have concerns around depression, suicide or anxiety, free call or text 1737 anytime for support from a trained counsellor or call 0800 Lifeline. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.